0: This is Our American Stories, and this is our special Memorial Day celebration. You hear a lot about Hillsdale College here on this show, and last year we sent three of their finest to Washington, D.C. to do some interviewing of folks who are honoring lost loved ones at the various memorials. And here is their terrific reporting.
1: Hello, I'm Shadrach Straley.
2: I'm Colby Conger.
1: And I'm Martin Peterson. The three of us go to school at Hillsdale College and work for Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, our school station. When we heard we would be interning at Our American Stories, we imagined grunt work,
2: photocopying, and countless cups of coffee. When we finally arrived at the studio in Oxford, we prepared ourselves, you know, to sit down, plod away on work for just a couple of weeks. But boy, were we surprised when Lee told us to pack up and hit the road. Right away.
3: What followed was a week-long road trip, totaling 3,000 miles and taking us all over the southeastern United States. We interviewed business owners, coal miners, and everything in between. So
1: much for making Lee a cup of coffee. The week ended on Memorial Day when we arrived in Washington, D.C. Our nation's capital was abuzz with activity. Men and women from all over the world crowded the streets, taking in the sights and sounds, and although there were food trucks and ice cream stands as far as the eye could see, we came to D.C., with a purpose. The night before Memorial Day, we attended a dinner in celebration of veterans. The dinner was small, with only two big tables and a handful of people. And everyone there had been through so much and lived full and fruitful lives. And here we were, three college students
2: doing their best to stay afloat. And it was a big surprise to me that all the veterans and attendants leaped at the opportunity to tell their stories with us. One such man was
3: Steve Ritchie, who served in Vietnam as a pilot for the Air Force and flew 339 missions. He shot down five enemy airplanes, becoming an ace, and one of the five Americans to do so during the Vietnam War. Steve told us about his journey becoming a pilot, starting with his father. He
4: was in Patton's Third Army in Europe in World War II, and in the GI Bill, when he came home, he took flying lessons, and he soloed, and he took me for a ride one time. And then he couldn't afford to fly anymore. So I got one flight in an airplane, but I wasn't hooked. I wasn't turned on. I built some couple of model airplanes. Uh, one was a B-29 bar. Uh But I was very excited about the Air Force Academy. It was brand new, and so I went. The other thing I remember is a, is a kid in that little town on Main Street um, looking up occasionally and seeing a, an airliner flying over going to Greensboro. And I, I remember thinking as a little boy, I said, someday I'll be in an airplane and I'll go all over the world. And I now have over five and a half million miles of traveled into 43 countries in all 50 states around the
3: world. He then told us that being a fighter pilot was far from the glamor of the Hollywood ace.
4: You know, having survived 339 missions, there were so many, many things, so many moving parts, so many things that had to go right, so many things that could have gone wrong. The fact that I'm here talking to you is probably one in 10,000 chance. Uh, so I'm incredibly fortunate and blessed. And, you know, fighter pilots have the reputation of being cocky. And we are until we spend a lot of time flying combat and a lot of our f- friends are killed. And that's a very sobering, humbling experience. My best friend um, was a young man named Woody Parker. His dad was a colonel on active duty. He was two years behind me. He was at the Citadel. I was class of 64 at the Air Force Academy, and he was 66 at the Citadel. We were teamed, just by a matter of chance, in the F-4 Phantom. And then as a first lieutenant, I got an assignment to Vietnam in the F-4 was paired with woody in the back seat on his tenth mission he was flying with someone else he should have been with me it was a scheduling mistake and he went into the ground in north vietnam at night was missing for 30 years and 30 years later some of our teams that are searching right now all over the world for remains of missing service people found remains at the crash site we did two different dnas and identified his remains and uh, His mom and dad asked me to go to Hawaii where they process all the remains from that part of the world and escort his remains to Arlington. They continued to promote him while he was missing. And once he was, uh, you know, once he found his remains, he was a major by that time. So I still wear this today in honor of uh, my best friend.
3: Steve finished by reflecting on Memorial Day
4: I know a couple hundred thousand people come out for the parade and and, and that's heartwarming uh, but I'm not sure how many people in our country really understand the sacrifice that, that so many have made but you know I go to the wall and I find Woody's name and others uh, classmates of mine they're about um, they are but Fifteen or sixteen of my classmates that were killed, a dozen that were POWs, um, and others that were killed in training, and that sort of thing. So, one of the things that that bothers people like me is that you know why did I make it and they didn't? Why did I make it and Woody didn't make it? I mean, it wasn't his fault that he went, that he was killed. And, of course, I had this incredible good fortune. There were so many times when I should have been killed and I wasn't, when I should have been shot down and I wasn't. And it was so close. I mean, it was just so close. And there's so many things that have to fall into place. The timing has to be so perfect. And so that's something that those of us who make it through combat struggle with, that uh, when there were so many... They were in the very same situation, and yet they didn't make it, and we did make it. So whatever we can do to say thank you to them and whatever we can do to honor those who have uh, fallen in their families, then it's special. It means a lot.
1: As that dinner drew to a close, we started to understand the importance of days like Memorial Day. And more from our Hillsdale interns. After these
0: messages, Steve lost 15 to 16 classmates in Vietnam, 12 POWs, and of course, his best friend, Woody. This is our American stories, soldiers' stories, our interns' stories, Memorial Day stories, after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Welcome back to our Hillsdale Interns' first road trip for Our American Stories. And we love to send young people in contact with old people. We had Faith, who was our youngest full-timer here, 21 years old. She was wondering what her first assignment would be. We sent her to the villages in Florida, America's largest retirement community. And she's done just terrific field work. Let's go back now to our interns as they visit the Vietnam War Memorial A beautiful piece of, I consider, sculpture by Maya Lin, dedicated in 1982, and their interviews with a
1: handful of Vietnam veterans. Our first Memorial Day stop was the Vietnam Wall. The Stark Memorial sits nestled into a green and groomed hillside, and despite the shining sun and singing birds that day, the wall was a solemn place. The wall itself was surrounded by men and women who had made the pilgrimage to find their fallen brothers' names
2: among the honored dead. And as we walked to the wall, we remembered the words of Paul Berry, an Air Force veteran and broadcaster who we had talked to the night before. He had this to say about Memorial Day.
5: It is the day that we bring them back from
6: wherever they are, to the places that they were born, to their mothers and fathers, to us. We bring them back to America because we remember them. We think about them we think about the sacrifice they made we think about their families we think about the babies they lost these were daddies and mommies brothers and sisters they don't come back do they but they can come back through us through memory and so we remember these people
3: we think about them at the wall we met a man on his way to pay respects he didn't tell us his name but he did tell us about his yearly tradition
7: well, we, my wife and I come down every Memorial Day and uh, Veterans Day. Um, remember uh, friends and classmates that, that we've lost. Um, it's the very least that we can do to uh, keep their memory alive. It's a nice gathering for a number of us who, you know, we don't see each other maybe except for once a year, you
3: know. So that's primarily why my wife and I come down. We then asked him how long he had been making the Memorial Day trip. Probably since the wall has been built. Um, took me
7: three times to finally get up to the wall uh, my third trip and then I just cried like a baby. And it's still uh, it's still just very emotional. Mm-hmm. Was well, there anybody in particular
1: you're remembering today or just You know, everybody.
7: Just everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's uh, Yeah, there are guys that that I knew directly, um, but, uh,
3: you know, this this is a day for everybody whose names are on the wall there. Those words stuck with us as we continued our search.
2: We met a man sitting on a secluded wooden bench all by himself, waiting for the Memorial Day ceremonies to begin.
8: Uh, Larry Young. I was a Spec 5 medic, combat medic. In Vietnam and uh, I'm here because I'm on the 25th Infantry division memorial committee which is used to be called the uh, tropical lightning or the electric strawberry so I bring the wreath down every Memorial Day and Veterans Day and, and it's usually presented during the official ceremony so I come down to remember our fallen brothers uh, my unit in Vietnam was C Troop, 3 quarter CAV, 25th Infantry division. I figured I'd enlist and try to pick a MOS that was, you know, I could, could learn a skill and also maybe not have to go into combat. But come to find out, by becoming a combat medic, I was right in the middle of combat, probably one of the most dangerous jobs that you could have. So.
2: We then asked Mr. Young who he was remembering this Memorial Day. I'm remembering Spec Four Joe McCarthy. His sister contacted me.
8: His sister Kathy contacted me recently, and uh, I don't know. He just brought brought the battle back to mind that he was killed in. And so I'm kind of focusing on you know on him and his family, the sacrifice they made. Interesting thing is, we don't. The combat soldier is not that interested in politics. I mean, when you're put in that life and death situation, you're just interested interested in surviving and and your unit unit surviving and your brothers surviving, your combat brothers surviving. Uh, the politics at home we really didn't pay attention to because we didn't have the luxury. <laughs> of, you know, being political. We were just trying to survive.
1: Across from the Vietnam Wall stands a statue known simply as The Three Soldiers. The statue depicts three men equipped for jungle combat. They stand still, staring to the wall and to their fallen brothers. There we found a single man standing in front of the statue and staring himself.
5: My, uh, my name is retired Chief Master Sergeant Fred Loney. And I, my home is Sheltenham, Maryland, and uh, and the reason I'm here today is because of the 58,000 plus back there that couldn't be here. A lot of them are real good friends of mine, just like family. And uh, being that I live 30 miles from here, I have no reason not to be here, even though I'm sick. I'm, you know, I've got stage four prostate cancer, but I'm, uh, I still it's my duty to be here. I had three tours in Vietnam, one 65, went back in 66, all of 66, and 68. My job was a, uh, I work on the gunships.
1: For him, enlistment was a difficult choice.
5: I was born in South Carolina, and uh, the reason I enlisted is there was no jobs or anything like that. I uh, didn't have a hell of a lot of choice, you know. Uh, my father asked me did I want to go to college. I didn't have the heart to tell him I wanted to go to college because he was making one dollar an hour. I knew if I'd have told him I wanted to go, he would have made away. So I wouldn't want to put that pressure on my family.
1: Mr. Loney hoped to remember two men who were very close to him.
5: One young man named Ben White. He's out of South Carolina and another gentleman named John Cosgrave. Uh, John Cosgrave, uh, I was his his, uh, sergeant and uh, the gentleman who replaced me made a critical error. We had to go down after midnight to pick up the flying order for the next morning. But I told him to always send the guys in there early, don't send them in after midnight. He sent them in at two o'clock in the morning and as soon as they walk out of the command bumper, bunker, there's a 122 mortar around, fell right in front of them and killed both of them. I was angry a lot of years about that, and I had good reason to be. And those were the main people. Uh, you know, there was other, you know, people that I was familiar with, but uh, one is a friend, and the other one, like I say, I was angry because that happened to him.
1: After the interview, Mr. Loney asked us to take his picture in front of the statue. He took his place, smiled, and stood next to those three venerable soldiers.
3: He fit right in. Later in the day, we met a man named Tony Postelli. He walked with the king, stood about 5'3", and worked as one of the famous tunnel rats during the Tet Offensive. During the war, the North Vietnamese dug networks of tunnels for supplies and transportation. And American soldiers crawled through those tunnels with nothing but their weapon and their wits.
9: And when you're a tunnel rat, you know, you're in there by yourself a good amount of the time. You know, and, you know, people say, well, you know, you had a thought. No. When I was in the tunnels, if I was going, everybody was going. And that's the way that I looked at it. When you're down there, you can smell everything. You can hear everything. You don't need a flashlight or anything else. You need your hands and your senses. Because if you have a flashlight they're gonna get you they're going to get me so uh i went into a lot of rough situations i seen a lot i did a lot and you know and i thank god that you know i am back here and i fought for my country i did my job they asked me to go i went
3: he told us who he hoped to remember and left us with an earnest plea
9: i want to celebrate my my best friend jim stites who died on his 21st birthday you know, the day before his birthday, I went down to the wall and saw him again today. It took me all these years to get down there and see them, you know, see his name. And to do that, you know, that, almost, that just tore me to pieces because it brought back all the memories all over again. Everything just came pouring right back. But it made me feel good, the respect that I have for him and all the other fallen soldiers, you know. And that's my right. That's what I'm here for, to say they died. And don't forget their face and don't forget their name. Just don't forget us. That's all we ask for.
2: And so we packed up and left the Vietnam Memorial, hoping to never forget the faces and the names of that day. And when we come
0: back, more from this remarkable field trip from our Hillsdale interns. By the way, you should do this with your family. The next Memorial Day, it's a terrific trip. Go to Arlington and go everywhere else. By the way, thanks to Hillsdale for lending us their best and brightest each and every summer. When we come back, our Memorial Day celebration continues here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories. Our young students honoring our older veterans and those who've fallen. We were just talking during the break and one of our interns had noticed Fred Loney sitting alone tear in his eye near the memorial near the Vietnam Wall. And again, stage four prostate cancer, still going there. 20 plus years, a retired master sergeant. Sergeant Fred Loney No jobs in South Carolina, he said. Didn't want to be a burden to his dad. Multiple tours in Vietnam. And again, the loss and the respect. Let's go back now, this time with our interns, to the World War II Memorial.
1: The World War II Memorial was next on our list, and as we left the Vietnam Wall, it rose into sight. Where the Vietnam Memorial sits stark and personal, the World War II Memorial stands in a grand fashion. We
3: were lucky enough to reach the monument moments after the World War II Memorial Day ceremony had concluded, with many of the veterans staying behind to take pictures and talk with interested civilians. We took this opportunity to interview a few of them.
2: First was retired Army Sergeant Harry Miller. We saw Mr. Miller standing in the crowd with his hands in his pockets and wearing his old uniform proudly. We discovered a man who was enthusiastic to share his story, particularly one involving a stolen German Tiger tank.
10: Well, our outfit captured the only intact German Tiger tank and brought it back to the States. The fellow that actually captured it was a friend of mine. and. Uh, what happened was uh, when he caught the tank while he was going down a fire break and he came face to face with his Tiger Royal, and generally that's the last thing you see if he's come face to face with a Tiger Royal. So what happened was he stopped and he was wondering why nobody was taking any action. So he fired, a, he thought maybe the crew was asleep inside the tank. So he fired a star shell above the tank and it lit it up. And when he did that, why, the German crew jumped out of the tank. I guess they thought he was, they were on fire. So he was up in the turret, and he fired and he killed uh, three of them, wounded one, and none of them got away. So anyway, he radioed back to our battalion commander, and he said, I captured this Tiger Royal, and he says, I'm going to... And the colonel told him, he said, oh, get out of that damn thing before some American comes along and, and blows you out. So he said, no, I'm going to take this damn thing all the way to Berlin. He says, no, get out of there. And he said, no, I'm going to take it all the way to Berlin. So he drove it for a while, couldn't find any good targets, so he uh, he uh, abandoned it when he ran out of fuel. So he radioed back to the battalion commander and told him where it was. It was right near a little town of Koo, Belgium, COO. And uh, so he said, okay, well, I'll get an ordnance to bring it back tomorrow. So he got a hold of the First Army Headquarters and told them they had this captured tank. And they said, we'll we'll send up some ordnance unit and uh, have them bring it back, take it to the port, bring it back to the States. Then they took it back to uh, the Spa, Belgium Railroad Station. And uh, the next... And then everybody went out to take pictures of it and everything. Of course, then the next day, this, well, this ordnance unit put their marking on the turret, showing a 234th, I think it was, uh, ordnance evacuation company. We didn't like that because our unit captured it. So it went all the way back to uh, uh, the Aberdeen Proving Ground up in Pennsylvania. And uh, they kept it on there until they examined it and they, found out what it would do and what it wouldn't do so finally about 30 years later they sent that tank to Fort Knox well we got I went to Fort Knox and what they did they had cleaned it all up made it almost like brand new they sliced off the side so that you could see inside the tank well I looked at the little tag that they had there in front of the tank and it said that it was captured by this ordnance unit so that burnt me up so I chased over to the uh, office of the curator of the museum I told him I said hey that's a mistake that ordinance unit didn't capture that tank my outfit captured it I said I've got I can prove it to you I said I can get you an affidavit that we still had about 300 guys in the outfit and uh, he said no that won't be necessary he said but if you know the guy that captured it I'll get a tape and and, uh, and if I believe it I'll I'll change that So when I went home, I called him up, told him about this tank sitting there with the wrong identification on it. And he says, no, he said, I captured that scene. He said, I want the credit for it. I said, I do too. So I took took the tape and sent it back to the curator of the museum. And the next time I went back, he had changed it. He said it was captured by the 740th Tank Battalion.
2: Following the story, we chatted with Mr. Miller about his 22 years of service and why he decided to enlist.
10: Everybody was patriotic. Everybody was patriotic during World War II. Uh, My mother had died when I was three. My dad died when I was 12.
11: I really felt that
10: I always wanted to be in the Army, and I, I just thought that was the time to do it. I almost went to Canada to join the Armed Forces up there, but my sister talked me out of that. So as soon as I got the chance, I went in the American Army.
2: He told us he was only 16 years old when he enlisted. Now, how was that possible?
10: Well, I had to lie about my head. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I had to September work at it. Fortunately, September they never asked me for change. a birth certificate. Well, first of all, Be- is, is I type say type fortunately because this this I didn't have, have one until about 20 board years ago I went to get a
1: passport. We also talked to Frank Cohn, a soldier who stood out in his unit because of his ability to speak German.
7: Uh, I was drafted when I lived in New York, and uh, I was uh, I was 18 in August of 1943 and drafted in September 1943, so that went rather fast, and then I got over into England in uh, September 44, and ended up in Belgium for the uh, Battle of the Bulge, and then we went into the Rhineland Campaigns and then the Army of Occupation. Uh, I was involved in intelligence work. I spoke German, and uh, that made a difference.
1: Frank's German-speaking landed him on one of his most memorable journeys. But it wasn't to speak German.
7: We met the Russians at the Elbe, and uh, my captain wanted an interpreter, and he couldn't find anybody who spoke Russian, so he took me. So we went across and we saw the, the Soviets and very few yeah, Americans yeah. went across I because uh, Eisenhower said the Albert oh, no, was not to be right. crossed. So uh, but he had a map that showed the uh, occupation zones and the occupation zone went over on our side. But he, I guess his mission was to tell him to wait for six months before we turned back before he should come over. When we came over we were celebrated like we were the two who won the war. And the reason for that, it took me a long time to figure it out. We didn't really have to fight all the way to the Albert. The, the war was over for us a couple of weeks before. The Germans were giving up right and left. But the uh, Russians had to fight all the way up to the Albert. So when they saw us, they realized that there were no more Germans in between, and they survived the war. That's why they were celebrating
11: that.
1: And on Memorial Day, Frank tried not to remember the bad things but rather the memories that would put a smile on his face. The miserable times you
7: try to get that out of your mind. Uh, you, you look at the things that somehow became humorous after a while, you know. They probably they weren't funny at the time, but uh, like I, going across, I was trying to get out of it because I knew I didn't speak Russian. And here I was making history going across. Didn't realize that.
1: And yet here we were, standing in a group of men who had all made history in their own way. And when we come back, one final
0: segment from our Hillsdale interns, their road trip to Washington, D.C. to capture the stories of fallen soldiers and the folks who they left behind, loved ones they left behind. This is Our American Stories. Welcome back to Our American Stories, our final segment with our Hillsdale interns. And Hillsdale College is the finest place in America to study all the things that are beautiful and matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Their terrific online courses are available for free at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And we return to Washington, D.C., And the guys are interviewing a World War II vet here in this segment, a military wife and an active duty serviceman.
1: As we continued to circle around the World War II memorial, we were struck by the enormity of it. Showing the sheer scale of the war, huge pillars surround the memorial. Each one of these pillars represents the states and territories that sent men and women to the field, and two separate pavilions sit on opposite sides of a large center fountain, representing the two major theaters of the war and paying homage to individual battles and events. You can't help but feel small walking on those stone steps. We
3: talked with a man named Ed Desmond, who told us about his time in the Navy from his wheelchair.
12: Ed Desmond, I'm from World War II and I was on a LCS uh, number 128. There were gunboats in the Pacific, and uh, there was 130 of them, so they didn't have names, they had numbers. And we sailed, uh, I got my ship in Boston, we sailed down the coast. We could only stay out for 30 days because of drinking water, you know, you got to have water to live. So we went down the coast, up at the... Um, Little Creek, Virginia, and Ports, uh, New York, of course, and Key West, Florida, Charleston, South Carolina. Then went down to the canal, went over to San Diego, stayed there for about a week, refueled and blah, 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 blah. Then we went to um, sail from there to Hawaii, and uh, from there we went to Inuitok, Guam, Saipan, all of those, maybe not in that uh, succession, but, uh, and then we went down to uh, uh, Okinawa. And we did picket duty for the destroyers and battleships. And basically, if they had to get to the battleships, they had to go to our firepower first. And uh, so we wound up down in Philippines ready for the invasion of Japan. And it was the most dramatic scene I have ever seen. There were so many ships, you couldn't count them, and you couldn't see the end of them. And, when the, and the war ended, and all the guns fired up, and we had to go below deck because the shrapnel was coming down on top of us.
3: We asked Ed what life was like as a veteran, and he told us a story about a yearly reunion he attends with his former shipmates.
12: On these 130 ships, right, we have a reunion every year in a different city in the United States. And last year we were in Sacramento, California, and there were only 12 of us left out of over 10,000. I mean, don't forget, you know, their wives and everybody else, they can't maneuver around, and, you know, age takes its toll on uh, movements. So we... uh, we went out there and we we were heroes, you might say, you know in the uh, because there was only twelve of us, but hey, and I was a youngster and I'm ninety two. So you know, most of the others are long gone, they're planted.
1: It's estimated that by 2036 there will be no living World War II veterans. and having the opportunity to talk with even a handful of them was certainly an honor. Mr. Desmond's story, was a painful reminder of those statistics. At this point, many of the veterans had left, and others were getting ready to leave. We got our stuff together and decided that we too had to move on.
3: After our time at the World War II Memorial, we attended the yearly Memorial Day Parade. The streets were jam-packed, so we took that opportunity to talk with some of the parade-goers.
2: And as we rounded a corner, we noticed a large group of Girl Scouts wearing matching hot pink shirts. Their scout leader was more than happy to talk to us about why they were there.
13: We're part of the Tall Pine Service unit out of Jackson, Mississippi with the Girl Scouts. And this was our trip that our council chose for the year. And so our girls, they, um, you could pay money to attend, and then also the cookies that you sold, all of the cookie money that you earned was put towards the trip. So we've got 82 people here. We've got um, nine different councils represented. We've got girls from the age of 17 down to seven. And we um, have a whirlwind week here in the Capitol. And we're, we're here Monday through Friday doing uh, everything, memorials, parades. There's a ghost tour I think some are doing tonight, Pentagon Memorial, anything and everything about American history we're trying to cram into one week and show these girls our history
2: when we asked if she had a personal connection to memorial day she gave a rather unexpected answer
13: my husband actually just deployed two weeks ago and so um, it's very important to my daughter and i and to all of her friends that actually our troop every year you get to donate cookies whenever you buy cookies you can also donate them And our troops chose to donate all the cookies to my husband's unit they just deployed. And so all the guys who went got a box of cookies and I don't know, something small, but it made them really happy. Um, But yeah, all the guys I'm seeing here in uniform are making me just a little sad, but very, very grateful, very thankful. It's something that I never thought I would experience. He only joined the army about four years ago to fly helicopters. And it drastically changed our lives for the better. And it makes you appreciate things in a whole new light. Um, Not being a part of the military, you, you appreciate things and you see a soldier and you think, you know, thank you. And then being a part of it, it's just a whole new respect. And, you know, the ones that are currently in, the ones that have retired, all of them, they at one point or another said, you know what, I will die for you. I don't care if I know you, if I don't know you, if I like you, if I don't, I will do that. And that just, that's awesome.
2: He then elaborated on her husband joining the Army.
13: He had a friend that told him if he joined the National Guard, he could fly helicopters. And so he joined, and then he came home and told me. And so he came home and said, hey, I joined the Army today, and I, sh- and I go to basic in two weeks. Yay. And uh, our daughter was two, and he nearly didn't survive the night, but he did. And then he left... And here we are.
2: She concluded by talking about what it feels like to be in Washington, D.C. on Memorial Day.
13: Whenever this trip came up, I really wanted to come. I've never been to D.C. before. My daughter hasn't. A lot of the girls in our service unit haven't ever been here before. So just to see their faces as they see not only the monuments and all of the, the buildings here, but the history, and then you're right, seeing all the people here for the parade and just all of the... I don't know, the patriotism? I mean, I guess it feels kind of funny to say that and be like, you know, the patriotism, and you want to, like, make an arm gesture, but, like, yeah, that's what you feel. And so we're, we're really glad to be here.
3: We then talked with an active-duty serviceman, Gary Merritt. Gary made the trip to Washington, D.C. to pay his respects. I
14: come here basically uh, to remember everybody. Blessing my, my father, who I lost four years ago uh, from Agent Orange from Vietnam, so... Just, it's just so humbling. My my, but my pal, second year riding in the Rolling Thunder, yeah, that we started. So we come down here every, every Memorial Day now for Rolling Thunder. Yes, I did want to serve, but I, he was Navy, and I joined the Army first with the 82nd Airborne. And I went to um, Grenada, and then I had an eight-year break, but then I came back in and uh, still serving now. I'm still like to do the Air Force right now. Uh, I'm up a West, uh, in southern Mass. I'm a security forces, and uh, I've got two more years to retire, and then I retire. And what
3: were his fondest memories?
14: I would say it's uh, the camaraderie of the, the trip, that my friends, and the people I met. You know, it's like I still have friendships from 20 years ago, or, when I first joined. Thanks to Facebook, <laughs> you know, you know, you you can get in contact with people and all that, and you you never lose that brotherhood, you know, or brother and sisterhood now you know and it's it's amazing that you can go to another veteran and they know where you've been and what you're feeling you know and uh right now i'm advocating for we're advocating for i work for the vets i donate my time for the vet center and dav and there's so many of these people that do not get the benefits that they should deserve and we're trying to fight to give them the education and all that to get it so that's my my main goal
3: Gary believes Americans can learn a lot from an old John F. Kennedy quote.
14: The mentality of Americans have to change again to feel empowered for their country. That's got to be the mental thing of what can I do for my country, not what my country can do for me. It's just sad that we've fallen into a what can I get from it and not give anything in return. That's what I feel.
1: And with that, we packed into our minivan and headed home. The day had been a little overwhelming, meeting so many people who served and the loved ones who saw them go. Of everything we heard that day, though, one thing really stuck with us.
9: That's my right. That's what I'm here for, to say they died. And don't forget their face and don't forget their name. Just don't forget us. That's all we ask for.
1: So, we ask you to do the same. Never forget.
0: And great job, Martin, Shadrack, and Colby. And thank you, Hillsdale, for lending your best to us. And we won't forget—not here on our American stories, not just every year around Memorial Day. All year long, we honor our soldiers you have to, folks. 2036, imagine that. No living World War II veterans. One of our projects this coming year is to talk to as many living World War II members as possible. If you know any, if you have any, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Any loved ones who were alive and served in that great war, let us know. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, Soldiers' Stories, and I love that mom, that military wife mom. What a lady. What a family. This is Our American Stories... And it's our special Memorial Day edition. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the deadliest battle and the deadliest war of all of Americans' wars. And of course, that was the Battle of Gettysburg. See the movie. It was terrific. Listen to the speech at home. You're about to hear the speech in a bit by Lincoln. 273 words only. Following a two hour address by a very renowned speaker who no one remembers anymore. The war, well, it was a turning point, the Gettysburg battle. Lee had been winning, and he felt it was his time to move north and put enough pressure, political pressure, on the people of the north to just simply quit. Lee showed up around Gettysburg with 70,000 men The Union Army, 100,000. But ultimately, the Confederate Army was not able to break the Union defense. It was their last chance to break the North. They didn't know it then. But it was just about over. And of course, when Grant gets into control of the Union Army, his maneuvers to Vicksburg... Well, we're going to cover all of it with Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow's book on Grant was just terrific. But we're here talking about the soldiers and the dead. There were 51,000 casualties in this very short battle. 3,100 Union dead, 4,700 Confederate dead. And by the way, Hillsdale College, and you hear a lot about them here on our show, They sent more people to the Civil War, more soldiers from their school than any private school in America, 300. They lost 60. I'm not sure whether any of them lost their lives in Gettysburg. If you ever get a chance to go to that part of the country, do it, and do it when they're having a reenactment. It's not far from Harrisburg, about 35 miles south. And so, months later, in November of 1863, Abraham Lincoln, president, then, was invited to deliver remarks, which would later become known as the Gettysburg Address, at the official dedication ceremony for the National Cemetery of Gettysburg in that town. And author David McCullough, he sets up the scene.
15: On November 19th, Lincoln traveled to Gettysburg to dedicate the new Union Cemetery. The featured speaker was Edward Everett of Massachusetts, a diplomat, clergyman, and celebrated orator. The president had been invited almost as an afterthought to offer a few appropriate remarks. Everett spoke for not quite two hours. Then Lincoln rose. The local photographer took his time focusing. Presumably the president could be counted on to go on for a while. But he spoke just 269 words. He started off by reminding his audience that just 87 years had passed since the founding of the nation. And then he went on to embolden the Union cause with some of the most stirring words ever spoken. Lincoln was heading back to his seat before the photographer could open the shutter.
0: And without further ado, let's listen to Sam Waterston's rendition of the Gettysburg Address.
16: Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met here on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that their nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract the world will little note nor long remember what we say here but can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they have thus far so nobly carried on. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people by the people for the people shall not Perish from the earth.
0: And beautifully done by Waterston, and that's, of course, from Ken Burns' The Civil War. And for the rest of the hour, our celebration and our honoring of the fallen soldiers for all of America's wars. And when we come back, you're going to hear a whole lot more. And we would love to hear your stories here on Our American Stories, a love letter, a note, an oral story, an oral history, anything. Send it to us, and we'll take a look, we'll take a listen, and we'll try and produce some of them for next year's Memorial Day celebration here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we sent our team to Washington, D.C. over Memorial Day weekend to the National Memorial Day Parade, our nation's capital, where for 70 years there wasn't a parade honoring those who paid the ultimate sacrifice to our country. And the great folks at the American Veterans Center brought the parade back to life in 2005, and financier Robert Agostinelli has been the chairman of the parade, leading the fundraising efforts so that 100% of the event is privately funded. Our own Alex Cortez will bring us the highlights of his conversation with folks at the parade and on the National Mall that day. Alex, what do you have first for us?
17: Lee, at the parade I met Kevin Wensing. He was a retired Navy captain and now lives in Alexandria, Virginia, and I asked him who he was honoring.
18: Well, I've got uh, several friends, uh, a friend of mine who worked at Pentagon with me, Alan Rogers. And then I uh, had a, cu- a cousin of mine who was a uh, World War II B-24 pilot, uh, Russell Anderson, who, who did like 20, 20 missions in, over World War II in, the, in his B-24 and then crashed and died in, in the wars. Actually, his son was a Air Force pilot and died during the Cold War in a plane crash. Oh, wow. And he was and his son was a little baby when, he, when the dad died in World War II. Never saw his little baby. And then his son died as, a, as an Air Force pilot uh, during the Cold War in a, a, a mid-air accident and died in, in, in the line of duty. So uh, his name was Russell Anderson as well. So those are three people that, you know, directly in my family who I, who I you know, died during the war or friends. I've got a lot of other friends who died in the line of duty, you know, or badly wounded, injured. And uh, so today is a day for all Americans to remember all those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. I was just looking at the National Archives. That that statue over there says "Eternal Vigilance is the price of liberty." That says it all. It's kind of kind of exactly right. Exactly. (laughs) And every time I every time I drive by here, I I I look at this as like a like a temple, right? The Temple of Freedom, right across from the Temple of Freedom here, with the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, all the things that inspire our country, and frankly. Billions around the world. Amen. Kevin and I
17: then spoke about one more thing.
18: Uh, What would you want Americans to know that they might not know about veterans? Uh, Well, veterans do it for the love of the country. Uh, They do it for each and every American, regardless of, you know, what, and especially today, regardless of your political views or whatever, they do it to preserve and protect America, keep, keep all Americans safe, and, 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 and keep all Americans safe. Because without freedom and without, secu- without security, the rest is all academic, really. If you don't have your security, your freedom, you know, all the other debates that go on are kind of moot, really.
0: And that's so true, Alex. And by the way, Russell Anderson, senior and junior, you just have to think, wow, what a price that family paid. And thanks, Kevin, for doing what you do and remembering What you got next, Alex?
17: Well, as you heard, Lee, it was pretty loud at the parade, as the parade should be. So I decided to actually conduct most of my interviews at the various war memorials, where it was a little bit quieter. And I first went to the Vietnam Memorial, in a memorial that's distinctive by listing every man and woman who died in the war. And when I got right outside of it, I ran into a young family from Baltimore who were coming out of it and clearly very emotional. Uh, They told me that they come together there every year. And this year, they especially wanted to come before they moved to Tennessee. Uh, the father's name was Steve, and he told me about his own father, Wayne, who served in Vietnam and the impact he had on his life.
19: Probably one of the best memories that I have with him was coming down here on Memorial Day back in 88 and going to the wall. And uh, there were, as I was telling my kids, there were some specific places on the wall that he didn't want to see because there were guys that he knew that oh, wow. he thought that he was pretty, pretty sure he had had died. Did just... so you know where they were on the wall? He knew where they were, Yeah, but um, because he was over there in 67, 68. um, Fortunately, when he was there as a platoon sergeant, he didn't lose any of his guys, but there were a lot of guys that he knew that he was friends with, that he had had gone through basic with, that he knew had died in in Vietnam. Um, Did he ever really open up to you about his time over there? He did. He told a lot of stories, and for him, it was, uh, I think, a different experience than for a lot of other people, because he was older going into it. He'd been in the military for a while. Um, and that was a lot of kind of what got me to go in the Air Force. So it was just the time that he had in the military and kind of the experiences that were there. And Fortunately, I've got, a, I've got two nephews that are in the, in the Army. I've got a cousin that's in the Army. I've got two of his kids that are also going through uh, West Point right now, so it's definitely a family thing.
17: Man, these families across our country who go in the line of duty again and again and again, even after seeing your own dad go through something like that where he can't go to a part of the wall. Uh, Lee, I then saw two gentlemen who were coming together named Bill and Len. They were members of the Vietnam Veterans of America's Northern Virginia chapter. And here's what Len had to say.
20: i been reciting uh, Flanders Fields, the iconic uh, World War I poem here at the wall for probably 20 years. And uh, today, Day. yeah, and Veterans Day, too, usually. But as far as people on the wall, I knew quite a few. I don't know. Um, you know that were on. I was on three advisory teams over there, um, but I, you know, I was mainly with the Vietnamese. And um, but I had two friends from school. One was uh, Jay Trembley from Gonzaga Prep in Spokane, who was shot down in 1968 over China after making an raid on Hanoi, and the the fire was so heavy they had to go to China, and, and he headed out of, couldn't get back to the ocean. And he was shot down and missing for 40 years. And his sister, they finally, a farmer in China, finally found a bone and brought it back. And, and uh, they had a huge funeral here about eight years ago. So his were na- able to identify him? Yeah, through this DNA. And they, and they wow. um, they uh, <clears throat> had a huge funeral. And, of course, his name was on the wall uh, with a cross. And, of course, a cross de- designates someone who is missing and has not been found. So now if you go up and look at Jay Tremblay, uh, you can look it up in the book, they will take it like a dentist drill and change that cross to a diamond. So there are a lot of those there. Then The Army usually recovered their P. He was a Navy pilot. But uh, the Air Force was not able to. to... They lost a lot more because obviously they'd have a crash in the jungle and they wouldn't find them. So if you go to the wall and you go right up there to the apex... Most of those that are still missing are right there at the air very end of the war because the Army was gone. It was mainly Air Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other friend was uh, uh, from high school uh, in Spokane also, uh, Lewis and Clark. He was, um, he was a nephew of uh, Bing Crosby. His name was Dick Crosby, and he inherited a shitload of money <laughs> and uh, got a brand-new 58 Impala as a senior year in high school. And... Um, he volunteered to go in the army. Everybody's relatives. Yeah, he's. Everybody said this guy's got it made. He's. He's a. He's a. You know, inherits a half a million when he's seventeen or eighteen, <laughs> and uh, he he went off and enlisted in the army. Do you know so, why he did it? I don't know. I never talked to him after that. He he and he was uh, in special forces, enlisted, and was a crew chief on a uh, on a Huey and shot down in Tainan. And he was missing for about six six months or so. But his name's also on there, with the same way. If you look up Richard Crosby, um, it's amazing the way they designed that wall so that they can actually fit another name in if they find somebody that, like, uh, built. And then the last story that's most interesting is uh, I lived in Jakarta, Indonesia, for about six years on and off, and uh, it was about four years ago. I was down at the wall and, um, one of our members was talking to Bill and he looked over and he said, who's that guy? It was me. And and Len said, oh, that's Len Funk. And he says, I know him. He was in Jakarta when I was there. (laughs) So yeah, we've been, we just hadn't seen Bill in what 40 years. Yeah. 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 So the wall is a great healing place, you know?
0: Well, Alex, great work, and when we come back, we're going to hear more stories from Washington, D.C. We don't just do Memorial Day stories on Memorial Day, and we don't just celebrate our soldiers on those big days. We do it all year long here on Our American Stories, and we just heard Len Funk mention the poem Flanders Fields and how he reads it every Memorial Day and every Veterans Day at the Vietnam War Memorial, and so we wanted to go out with that poem and one of our favorite artists, the one and only, the great Leonard Cohn.
21: In Flanders' fields the poppies blow Between the crosses row on row that mark our place And in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly Scarce heard amid the guns below We are the dead Short days ago we lived Felt dawn Saw sunset glow Loved and were loved And now we lie in Flanders' fields Take up our quarrel with the foe To you from failing hands We throw the torch Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields.
0: This is Our American Stories. More stories from D.C. Memorial Day weekend after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Alex's conversations on Memorial Day weekend with folks at the National Memorial Day Parade and at our nation's war memorials. And what do you have for us next, Alex?
17: Uh, Lee, I next ran into a group of four guys who were hanging out together. And actually, when I was about to conduct this interview, they only let me do it for a couple of minutes before the Park Service kicked me out. <laughs> it yep, turns yep. out these gentlemen served in Vietnam together in the 11th Armored Cavalry. And they were actually waiting for more of their buddies for a wreath-laying ceremony. It seemed like they'd come there every year. And here's what one of them said when I asked them who they were honoring that day.
22: Uh, Captain Bill Green uh, he's a good man, G Troop commander, good guy.
17: What did he mean to you or to, to um, tell me about some it, of your times
22: well not so much times together just a good friend and uh, and it was really uh, particularly with him is uh, the colonel was trying to make a decision at uh, that juncture when he came into country if it, he, he wanted me or him to take command of that troop that he had g troop and he had a little bit more seniority on me so the colonel ended up giving him the troop and he got killed. So I kind of wonder, would well, that same thing happen to me? If I'd been there, I don't know. You never know. But, uh, but that uh, it always kind of haunted me. It could have been me, and, and it was him instead. Is there anything that's helped
17: you find peace over the years? Or? Oh, yeah.
22: You just pray, and you, you move on, and you know, reflect back on it all. But mainly is you got to bury it as much as you can. And getting together like Meeting this. Getting together, I think. This is my like because... Yeah. The first friend. thing we all say is welcome home, always, yeah. the Vietnam vets, because when we left Vietnam and came home, uh, there was no warm welcome. It was, it was pretty bad.
17: And one of the gentlemen there actually became a chaplain um, after his time in, in Vietnam. And the, the final Vietnam veteran I spoke with was Angela Wider, and I asked him who he was remembering that day.
6: I would uh, like to recognize and acknowledge uh, Big Muddy, Rudolph Davis. He was replacing me on a mission, and got killed. And so I honor his service and honor his sacrifice.
17: I mean, Did you ever think that could have been you?
6: Yes, but for the grace of God.
17: Yeah. Um, has your faith really helped you? Uh, you know, get through that loss.
6: The time is the biggest element. Faith, yes, but time. You know, you just got to deal with the time.
17: What uh, made you enlist?
6: I had to get off the street. Oh, really? I was a little young thug, so... Where did you grow up? <laughs> Bronx, New York. Okay. What kind of stuff were you there? <laughs> Everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Army helped make a man out of me. And did you ch-
17: actively choose to go in, or did your family encourage you, force you? you- no, I, I
6: chose to go in because I, I didn't like the direction I was going in. And I knew sooner or later, either I'd be dead or in jail or, you know, something else.
17: What was your low point? I mean, there had to be a point where... To turn around and make that decision.
6: Well, when I didn't graduate from high school on time,
17: mm-hmm.
6: you know, so and everyone
17: else was, and
6: yeah, exactly. So I knew I was going down the wrong road.
17: How proud were your parents uh, after you served in the military and turned things around? Well,
6: well, very proud. I mean, I ended up going back to school, got my uh, bachelor's, got my master's, you know. Then I had a pretty good career. It, 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 it turned me around. Yeah. I, I owe that to the military.
17: For so many people, it reminded me, Lee, of the story we did with Ken McKay, who was an alcoholic at age 12, and he credits two people for turning his life around, an old man, Uncle Sam, and a young woman who became his wife. Yep. Uh, I next ran into a couple of veterans of the Iraq War, and the first was a gentleman from Maryland, and like the group of Vietnam veterans we heard from earlier, he also served in the 11th Armored Cavalry, and we began speaking about who he was honoring this day.
18: Just all my brothers and sisters, past and present, you know,
17: Anyone you were particularly close to who who passed away?
18: I'd rather not say. Okay. Was, you know,
14: what got you to enlist?
18: I've always wanted to serve. Always. Where did that come from? Well, it's kinda of like an unwritten tradition in my family. All the men in my family served. Yeah. And so it's just one of those things that was good for us and you know, love a country. You know. It's what it's what makes us great is our fighting men and
5: women. We volunteer.
17: What would you want Americans to know that um, hear about those who serve that they probably don't know?
5: Most of
18: us do it because of what I said before: love country. You know, it's it's not a last chance. It's not there was nothing else. That's what makes our fighting force the great force it is.
17: You can just hear the conviction in his voice. Too, I always wanted to serve. Um, I then spoke with Dan from Alexandria, Virginia. He's a Marine who was in second battalion 25th regiment and he told me he was part of task force tarawa which i had to look up i didn't know what it was and it was the name of their mission as part of the 2003 invasion of iraq and this marine task force lost 23 men during the invasion and here's dan on who he was honoring that day uh,
23: well unfortunately well fortunately i should say my entire battalion brought everybody home so uh, everybody that was under me over there all came home to their wives and their mothers. so uh, i would like to remember everybody else that did not come home and say a little prayer for their families and for loved ones and remember them today for giving the ultimate sacrifice so we can enjoy a day like today and the freedoms we enjoy every day you
17: clearly don't take it for granted that you're out here today no sir
23: no sir i never take it for granted every day i wake up and i'm proud of what I've done in my military past and proud of the guys who are still serving today and thankful for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice so we can enjoy our freedoms every day and unfortunately a lot of people do still take it for granted but it is nice to see all these people out today paying tribute to these brave warriors who have sacrificed so much for our country and uh, I hope it resonates with them for the rest of their life.
17: And why did you decide to enlist?
23: Um, family was uh, heavy in the military. I had a father and uncle who both served uh, during the Vietnam War. I had a cousin who served in the Marines uh, during Desert Storm, and I've always fascinated with the uh, military culture. And when I was in high school, I was looking for a change. I wasn't ready to go to college, and I figured the Marines was about the best change <laughs> I could get, and boy, was I right. It was a culture shock like nothing else, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I always tell people, if you take me back, the day I graduated high school, you tell me everything, good and bad, that I was going to do in my 11 years in the Marine Corps. At a heartbeat, I would do it all over again. Not a second's hesitation.
17: How did it change you?
23: Makes me appreciate everything I have. A lot more uh, confidence and i got a free ticket to see great places all over the world unfortunately some of those places i was shot at a few times but it's the price you pay i mean uh it was a good time uh i also call the marine corps the greatest love-hate relationship i ever had uh loved it to death but there were times where you questioned why you were doing this stuff but it it was all for a purpose, and I am grateful for my time in service and met some amazing people, great friends I am still friends with today. And, like I said, will not change it for the world. And again, that was Dan from Alexandria.
0: And that's Alexandria, Virginia, not far from the nation's capital. A short, short drive. And by the way, what he said about the Marine Corps... Well, I've heard that from almost everybody I've ever known who served in the Corps. The greatest love-hate relationship I've ever had. And deep gratitude for the experience, great friendships forged forever. And he said, I wouldn't change it for the world. Again, we're listening to stories of loss and love, fallen soldiers. If you have your stories, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And we'll put them together and hopefully the whole country can hear your stories. Because in the end, these are all of our stories. All of them. And if you get a chance, take your family to Washington, D.C., and do it around Memorial Day weekend. And make sure you start and plan everything around Arlington National Cemetery, because that's where to start it, folks. And then ultimately, the beautiful new effort, relatively new, the World War II monuments are just, just spectacular. And the Vietnam Wall is just... Well, don't speak, because you can't. And whoever's standing at that monument or in front of it, that wall, for a long time, approach them and just ask them who they're there to honor. And then just listen, because we got to do that more often, folks. Shut up. Ask a question. Take an interest in someone else's life. That's what we do here on this show every day for you, for all of us. Honoring our nation's fallen Our nation's fallen soldiers, this is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Alex's reporting from the National Memorial Day Parade and from the War Memorials that day. Alex, what do you have for this last segment?
17: Lee, the final Iraq War veteran I I spoke with unintentionally uh, happened when I was actually interviewing a World War II veteran named Frank Ettinger, and a middle-aged man came up to us and joined in, and I asked him who he's remembering this day.
24: I have... A couple from Iraq, but okay. I left. I left two soldiers there, so.
19: Okay. Yeah. Is this your old man? Yeah. 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 That's awesome. You guys get to come together. Yeah.
24: Oh, he lives with us, or part of the time. Yeah. When he's not with his girlfriend. <laughs> when he's not with
19: his girlfriend. Yeah.
24: <laughs> Down in Florida. How yeah. long have you guys been dating? I didn't do that well. Oh, since uh, about three
17: months after my mother died. Okay.
24: Oh man. So, yeah. You're
17: a fast learner, huh? No.
24: They. There are a lot of. There are a lot of widows. And very few little The
17: villages, is it?
24: No, live, <laughs> He lives real close to the Villages. <laughs> yeah.
17: He lives right around the corner from the Villages. We send a reporter to the okay. villages about yeah. once a month. This yeah. was at the. Uh, people there, this yeah. is the
24: uh, senior center at Wakefield in uh, in Springfield, so okay.
17: Why did yeah. you decide to enlist? I,
24: I got free college. I had a army, well, I had a scholarship to the Citadel. Yeah. In okay. Charleston, so. Yeah. So forty years, that was it. Desert Storm, Bosnia, Iraq. Came back from Iraq and retired. So, okay. right. God bless
17: you. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. Right.
24: Specialist Nicole Fry, her name is on a wall at Fort Bragg now. So, one, she, one of them. She died. She was killed about a week after we got to Iraq. Oh wow. In 2005.
17: So, four. Is that probably pretty uncommon for people to have a death among your colleagues that quick?
24: Um, most of the casualties in Iraq were when a unit first arrived. Oh really? That's by, just getting used to it. And, yes, yeah. yes. So it was rough writing the letter. I had to help write the letter for her family.
17: Especially a young
16: woman too.
24: Nineteen years old.
16: Uh-huh. Yeah.
17: yeah. I sure sounded stupid there. Um, but this, you know, this this gentleman, it was interesting. Obviously, he didn't want to mention her name at the beginning when we talked, but he couldn't help himself to to mention her at the end and and how much she touches his heart. Um, he also said forty years. That was it. That was it. That's all I did. I then spoke with another World War II veteran named Ewing Miller, a member of the Army Air Corps, and I asked him who he was honoring this day.
12: Well, I'm honoring my crew that I was a sole survivor of my aircraft when it went down over Vienna. And so I come uh, to these services to remember the Eleven men that were killed that day on the aircraft I was piloting.
14: Do you come every year?
12: I, I, I have the last three years. It's been more meaningful to me as I've grown older. Really? Yes.
17: I would have almost thought it was. I mean, it's most especially meaningful to you after it happened. I mean, that obviously had to be tough. I think
12: I was uh, in wondering I love it. I love it. why it was them. You know, that kind of feeling. Yeah. And you have a tendency to stay away from the thought. Actually, in, uh, when we all came home, there were so many men that went to war in World War II. Everybody had their own story. And we just didn't talk about it because uh, what do you, war stories get boring after Ohio. while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, yeah. <laughs> they, You want to talk and, about something else. So uh, we were more interested in trying to pick up our lives and move on. And I, I found that uh, as I've grown older, that I've become more aware of the life that those men missed.
17: Yeah. So your plane was shot down? Is that what happened? And... and,
12: uh, and Over Vienna. Yeah. 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 Were you okay
17: upon landing?
12: Uh, I was readily, badly injured in my left leg. I could stand up, but it was hard to walk on. Uh, So I was captured immediately. Oh, you were? Yeah. Taken, I was a POW then, until George Patton's army overran us, and liberated all of us
11: how long are you
17: a few
12: <laughs> well only about six months only yeah <laughs> only
6: you got a good attitude <laughs> well
12: i was on my 20th mission and i only had 15 more to go <laughs> it
17: Was so cool too lee is all these world war ii veterans were literally just hanging out there at the memorial like they were just receiving people and letting all of us benefit from their stories and learning from them which is so gracious to them Um, And once Ewing and I finished our conversation, I was leaving to try to find the next person to interview, and this woman just chased me down, and it happened to be Ewing's bride, Donna. Uh, She told me that what he said wasn't the whole story.
11: And
20: he actually did the master plan. He did the master plan for the redesign of the Pentagon just in the 90s.
14: Holy cow.
20: And he also redesigned... um, Twenty-four of the American air bases in England.
17: She's bragging on you. Ewing, tell him about I, I your. I was trying to leave, and she's bragging on you.
20: Tell him about what you did in England with the air bases. Well,
12: I
17: redesigned,
12: remaster, planned twenty-four air bases for the advent of the jet aircraft in 1952 to 1956.
17: She was telling us about the Pentagon here too.
12: Yes, I did the Pentagon master plan for that. did a master plan for the old executive office building remodel.
20: But he did the planning for the England bases because he had his uh, he had a graduate work from the University of Pennsylvania in architecture and planning and he was um, a pilot. So that combination
17: yeah. 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 probably pretty unique. Well, well it, it,
12: There weren't very many of us. I'll tell you, that had a degree of planning that came out of aviation, military.
17: And what a career after a stellar military career. Lee. Um, now the last person I spoke with, World War II veteran Ed Kaczynski from Hermantown, Minnesota. And unfortunately, a lot of the audio didn't come through well with all the winds, So I'll recount what Ed told me and close things out with him. He told me that what led him to sign up to serve was his brother sending him a picture of him coming out of a foxhole with a typewriter. And I guess Ed figured his brother needed some serious help. And Ed last served in Okinawa when, as he said, his disaster took place. He was in a tank and it exploded when it went over a mine. As Ed lay in the ocean, every bone in his body was broken and he was unable to move. And he looked around him. Four of the guys he was so physically close to that he could have touched them. Three of them then disappeared into the ocean. And the fourth was swimming right in front of him, his arm broken, blood coming out of his arm, and he died right in front of his eyes within five minutes. Ed then put his own head on a piece of coral and prayed to God that someone would come and save him. A passing plane did and brought Ed home. And here's the conclusion of my conversation with Ed how did you cope with um the loss of your friends there didn't bother me
12: didn't bother me at the time I. I. i cry i cry to this day that's the story of my life
17: but you're saying it didn't bother you in the moment Is that almost just you you have to deal with that that way in order to keep functioning? For
12: 15 years, I denied I was in the Marine Corps. I denied everything for 15 years.
0: And Alex, thanks for the reporting. Thanks for taking the time away from family to head up to D.C. on Memorial Day weekend. But it's a working weekend for us. We're preparing and we're sending interns out there and doing what we can do to honor our nation's fallen soldiers. And we want to take a moment now to list the American war dead. And starting things off, the American Civil War, 655,000 lost in the North and South combined. And folks, there were only 31 million Americans then, one-tenth our current population. So do the math. It'd be like losing 6.5 million of our sons and daughters today cataclysmic world war ii was next 405,000 again remember the ages of most of these people they're young it's our nation's precious most precious resource our sons and daughters vietnam was next 58,200 next korea i like to call it the forgotten war nobody talks about it ever 36,500 of our soldiers lost. The Revolutionary War, 25,000. The War of 1812, 15,000. The Mexican-American War, 13,000. Iraq and Afghanistan combined, 6,700. And the Philippine-American War, almost 4,200. And every Memorial Day, we'll honor the fallen and we're looking for your stories, too. Send them to us. Write to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take those stories, a letter. We love to read and perform letters. We'd ask you to perform them. Old ones, new ones. We had a friend of the show who gave us an old Civil War letter. Our Faith, she did a beautiful, dramatic reading, and it made, made a Smith so happy. When she was from Memphis, she recently passed. And she was so pleased to have heard that story over the airwaves for the whole country to hear. So again, send your stories of lost loved ones' lives, a love letter, a personal story, something written, something oral, and we'll try and present it next year on our Memorial Day celebration. Again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Also, give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story.